Today, um, if, if this is your first day, you've, you've joined us on a great week because this is week four of our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we are studying Kingdom Come as the name of the series. And the, for the last three weeks, we've seen Matthew explain and answer the question, who is Jesus? That's really what he's been unpacking to his audience. And he's tried to help them understand Jesus is much more than just a normal human guy. He's the Messiah, the promised ruler that they've been waiting for. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations on earth would be blessed. He's not just a normal king even. He's much more. He's the son of God, God with us, who has come to save his people from their sins. Right? Those are the things that Matthew has been unpacking for us. And as we're here this morning, as we're about ready to jump back into this, really you can't escape responding to Jesus. Every human being on this earth has to deal with Jesus' claims, his teachings, his miracles. You have to do something with it. You can't get away from it. And so as, as you sit here, my hope is that you would be asking yourself, how do I respond to Jesus? Who do I say that he is? And as we get into the gospel in Matthew in chapter 3 today, what you're going to see is there's only one right answer to that question. There's only one right answer to that question. And that answer should change the way that you live. At this time, I'm going to invite our ushers forward with the Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, if you just put your hand in the air, they will give you a copy of the Word of God to use. We love for everyone to be able to open it up and study it for themselves. If you've got one, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the New Testament. And we're going to be in chapter 3 today. Chapter 3, which is page 688 of the Bible that's being handed out to you right now. And as you turn there, I'll just kind of remind us that over the last two chapters, Matthew has really been establishing Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king. Now tell me this, what does every king rule over? A kingdom, right? Yeah, a kingdom. And so today, as we get into Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be introduced to Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which is a major theme throughout this whole gospel. So let's go ahead and uh, look at Matthew 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12 to get us started this morning. So follow along as I read it aloud. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff 
He will burn with unquenchable fire. There's a lot of interesting stuff that happens in these first 12 verses of Matthew 3. Right? You've got a guy who's dressed in some funny clothes. He's, he's got a very odd diet. Uh, he's speaking quite a, a hard message to hear. Right? We're told that him coming this way and declaring this message is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Then you've got these big crowds coming out of the cities, out into the wilderness, to the river, to be taught by him, to respond to his teaching even. They're, they're, they're being provoked to a response. And then you see there's confrontation in this there's tension, and there's talk of judgment. What are you supposed to do with all of that? How are you supposed to process and respond to what Matthew has recorded here? We'll go back and look at verse 1. Let me point out something to you. You may not have realized it because we picked up at the beginning of the new chapter, but there's a really abrupt transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Right? Back in chapter 2, Matthew's writing and recording about Jesus' childhood his early years. And then all of a sudden, he says, in those days, and he skips 30 years of history just like that and and talks about John the Baptist. He's getting right to the point. Jesus has made it through the the terror of King Herod. God has established him as his son. And uh, now we're here to see the beginnings of John the Baptist and Jesus's public ministries. And he's going to show us that Jesus is who he says he is by sending John as the forerunner. John's the one who comes first. He's the one who says, prepare the way of the Lord, just like it was told about in the Old Testament. And his clothing, which seems odd to us today, is food, which is an interesting diet, were actually in line with the prophets of old, especially the prophet Elijah. John is representing Elijah. And what Matthew's trying to help his audience realize is this is the promised prophet. The one who you were told about, the one who would come, who would help you prepare for the day of the Lord when, when he comes again. That's found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That would have been a passage the Jewish people knew. And they, when they saw this new Elijah, this John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah, they would have been like, Oh my goodness, it's here, it's coming, we must get ready, we must prepare which is why there's such a response. And John is quite the preacher, right? He doesn't pull any punches with his message. And there's a reason for that. Look at verse 2. Look at what he says again. His message is quite simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near to you. And that is serious business. It's no laughing matter. And I'm just going to draw your attention real quick to the bulletin. If you're paying attention The top of the bulletin is saying there's three realities in this passage that we must respond to. In in chapter 3 of Matthew, there are three realities that you can't ignore, that you must do something with. And John has just given you the first one. God's kingdom is at hand. God's kingdom is at hand. That's the central point to his life and ministry. It's what he came to teach and preach. And it's actually the same thing that's central to Jesus' life and ministry. Let me show you this. Look at, so Matthew 3, verse 2, we'll put it on the screen here. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we just read. That's John's message. Listen to how Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew 4, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And what did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same message. That was a big deal. The kingdom of heaven is serious business. And the Jews understood that. 
that this is no laughing matter, which is why you see them going out to the Jordan and being baptized and confessing their sins. They realize we need to get right with God. And I didn't realize this until I started studying for the sermon today, um, but Jewish people actually did not get baptized prior to this. For Jews, uh, the only people in that season of life that got baptized were Gentiles who were being baptized into Judaism, people who were converting. But it would have been abnormal for a Jewish man or a woman to get baptized themselves. And so what John is doing, he's, he's starting a new uh, thing in order to respond to God's coming kingdom. He's helping them prepare, saying, we need to change. They confess their sins in order to prepare for the kingdom of heaven. Now, here we are, right, many years later, and you may be wondering, well, what's the big deal? Like, what's, what is the kingdom of heaven, and, and why would they take this so seriously? Those are, those are good questions. Let's define the kingdom of heaven. It is the realized rule and reign of God. The realized or revealed rule and reign of God. And we know that God is overall, right? He is the creator and he rules and reigns. There's no one questioning that. But as humans, we often don't realize his rule and reign. We don't see it clearly. We're blinded. And so John is being sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. He's helping them be ready to hear what Jesus has to say. Remember who Jesus is, right? He is Emmanuel. God with us. When Jesus came down, God's kingdom, his rule and reign was being shown more clearly than it ever had before. People were understanding God is sovereign over all. And as Matthew's writing, it's good for you to remember the people he's writing to are predominantly Jewish people. So when these people are getting this letter, they're not questioning the fact that there's a God and that he rules over all. They, they believe that. And so when they see this prophet show up on their doorstep who's fulfilling these Old Testament scriptures that they've been studying uh, from hundreds of years ago, you better believe that they took that seriously. What is this about? The day of the Lord is coming. We must get ready. Well, how do they prepare? How do they get ready for this kingdom of heaven? John tells us in verse 2, right? He called them to repent. Repent. That's the million-dollar word. And so what does it mean to repent? I'm going to borrow from pastor and theologian D.A. Carson and share his definition because it's very rich. And here's what he writes about repentance. What is meant is not merely an intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief which results in fruit keeping with repentance. So he's talking about this complete change, this radical transformation in your life that you realize the old way of living was wrong. It was sinful, it was rebellious, and you're grieved over that. And with your whole being, you're turning and you're going a new way. You're living for the Lord. Your mind has been changed. Your desires, your your actions have been changed. You're grieved over the old way and you want to live for Christ. That's what John is calling the people to. Repent! But do you understand what that call to repent implies or assumes about humans? The call to repent assumes that there's something about us that needs to be repented of, that we must change, that there's something fundamentally wrong with humanity that needs to be addressed. Well, what could that be? Look at verse 6. We see the answer right there. 
What are these people going out to the river and doing when they're getting baptized? We're told they're confessing their sins. They were acknowledging, God, we fall short. We don't measure up to your holiness. Sin is intrinsic to our human nature. We enter into this world as we little things that are bent on serving ourselves, going our own way and operating according to our own will rather than going according to God's will and His ways. We fall short of His glory. We need forgiveness. We need redemption. That's what John is calling them to. Repent, turn away from living that way for yourself and turn to the Lord and follow Him. And so as they were baptized, as they were confessing their sins, that's what they're saying, Lord, we recognize that we're wrong and we need to be made new. We need you to forgive us. Help us to live for you. And so as we read this today, as we come at it with our modern day eyes, that's a lesson that we can take away. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has come. His rule and his reign is more clearly shown than ever before. And one day, Jesus is going to return and he's going to finish that work. And the only appropriate response is to repent. It's to turn away. It's to confess our sins and to follow him. That is what God-fearing people do. They recognize, I'm a rebel and I need forgiveness. So you really have to ask, as you're sitting here today, have I recognized that I'm a rebel? Have I acknowledged that I can't do it on my own, that up until this point in my life, God, I've been calling the shots, and I need you to be the Lord of my life, to forgive me of my sin. That's really what you have to wrestle with this morning. And if you would say, oh, I don't know that that's ever happened in my life, then that can be uh, the, the first and the most important takeaway for you from what we're talking about today, to confess your sin and repent and turn from it. That's what every person who professes faith in Christ has done. And so if you're under the impression that uh, Christians think that they've got it all together, I'm here to dismiss that uh, idea. Um, what a Christian is saying is that we are so wicked that the sinless Son of God had to die for us. That's what it means when you call yourself a Christian. Christians have acknowledged we can't do it. We need Christ to save us. He's the only one who can make us holy. Our hope is in Him alone. And when God's kingdom is fully realized, when Jesus returns, the only hope we're going to cling to is Christ and what he has done. We're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. That's, that's our hope, and that's what we confess, and he alone is worthy of our worship and our adoration. Now, if you're paying attention to what John says here, you notice that he has some sharp words for some folks. Right? If you look at verse 7, uh, we're told that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those are the Jewish religious leaders, when they come out to his baptism, uh, John is pretty sharp with them. He calls them out. And I want to point something out here. Just because they came to where he was baptized, and that does not imply that they came to be baptized. Uh, we know from reading later in the Gospels that they didn't care for John. They didn't respect him. They didn't honor him. So it's very unlikely that they would have been baptized by him. But instead, the religious leaders are coming out to say, hey, what's all this ruckus about? What's this crowd assembled in the desert doing? What are you, what are you teaching them? And John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
He paints it very clearly. There are two responses to God's kingdom being near. You repent or you be judged. Right? Those are the only two options. And if you don't repent, you will be judged. So the religious leaders, right, we see them here, they're clearly trusting in the wrong thing. That's why John calls them out on it. They are believing, oh, well, we're descendants of Abraham. He's our father, and so we're part of the people of God. That's all we need. Just claim Abraham, and that's it. Rather than living a life that pleased the Lord. John says, look, God can raise up sons from these stones. He doesn't need your claim to his heritage or his lineage. He can, he can bring people out of the rocks if he needs. God doesn't care about your pedigree. He cares about your worship. That's what he's after. And he says, true faith is revealed through good fruit. Right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Your fruit reveals whether you have faith. And that's a consistent theme of, of the scriptures and of Jesus' life and ministry. If you still got your Bible open, turn to Matthew chapter 7 real quick. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in Matthew 7. We're going to start in verses 15 through 20. This is now Jesus preaching. And I want you to look for the similarities here between what John has said and now what Jesus is going to teach. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you hear how similar what Jesus is teaching is to what John said? Right? It's your fruit that reveals your faith. If you want to be ready for God's kingdom, then you need to repent. And you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't rely on your heritage. Right? For us today, we're probably not going to claim to be descendants of Abraham as much as we would say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. That's something that I hear a lot. That doesn't save you. I also hear a lot of, well, I've, I've always gone to church or I've always been a Christian. That's not what scripture says. That's not what saves you. Don't, don't rely on those things. And I would go even further and say an implication from what we're studying today is you shouldn't even depend on your words, your profession of faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. I believe there are a lot of people walking around this world who have uttered with their lips, I believe in Jesus or something similar to that, but then go about living their life completely the same as if they had never trusted in Christ. There's no evidence of that change. There's no fruit in their life, in their thoughts, their words, their behavior. They're not repenting of their sins at all. You see, just because you say something doesn't make it so. Jesus says here, you will recognize them by their fruits. And I know that's hard to hear, but we have to say something about this. There are so many people walking around and their hope is in some statement they made years ago, but they've never borne good fruit. They've never changed. They've never truly repented and followed Christ. If you looked at them from the outside looking in, their thoughts, their words, their actions give you no evidence that they truly know Jesus. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to be accused of preaching works-based faith. It is not our works that save us. Right? The Bible teaches us by grace alone that we're saved. 
And you can go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and see that so clearly. Here's what I'm trying to point out. Rather than trusting in your words or depending on your words, depend on the finished work of God in your life. Rather than depending on your words, depend on the finished work of God in your life. You see, if God is working in you, it will produce change. He will produce good fruit in and through you. And that gives you great hope. If you're made new in Christ, you will desire to know him and to obey him. Will there be a war? Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But things will have changed. Listen to how Jesus continues. Go back to Matthew 7 now. We're going to read verses 21 through 27. Jesus has some hard things to say here. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's hard to hear. Jesus continues in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What you hear Jesus saying is that those who know him, they hear and they obey. Their life is radically transformed by his grace. That's what his grace does. It changes you. And if you're here this morning and you feel like, man, I feel like Pastor Nick's talking to me right now. It's kind of rude of him. I would just encourage you to wrestle with what we're talking about, that there is a disconnect between what you say you believe and how you're living. And that's not okay. And then it's time to address it. Right? That's what John and Jesus and I are calling you to do, to confess that and to repent of it, to turn and follow him, to allow Christ to change you. But that requires you to lay down your pride and to be humiliated by King Jesus. And let's be honest, there's nothing more humiliating than having to admit, I'm so wicked that the sinless Son of God had to die for me. And yet that's what we say when we profess to follow Jesus. Commit to hearing and obeying God's call for your life. If he's calling you, don't resist. Now for those who are here who are in Christ, uh, let's think about a couple of ways to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a lot that we could talk about, so I'm not going to I'm just going to go on a couple that are specific to our church for this season of our life and ministry. And I'll point out, I don't know if you realize this, but today is the first Sunday in February. Did you know that? Well, now you do if you didn't know that. And do you know what that means? It's time for a new prayer emphasis for our church. It's time to start working on the next pillar that we're seeking to memorize scripture for. And you might say, wait a minute, who signed me up for that? Well, you did. Uh, actually, we all as a church agreed to grow in the Lord in prayer and in discipleship under each of the six pillars that we say our church is about this year. And so some of the ways that we've sought to do that is by providing ways for us to pray each month. And so Jenna Russell, our prayer director, provided in the month of January a little one-page handout that helped us to pray for the unity of the church. 
And so we spent a week praying for our local church. We spent a week praying for other churches in the area and partnering with them. We spent a week praying for the global church and spent a week praying for our own part in all of that. Well, in the month of February, the prayer emphasis is on compelling community and purposeful discipleship. That we would become a people who are known by our love for one another. That we would be a people who take seriously the Great Commission and who get out there and make disciples of all nations. And so I would encourage you, this little one-page handout is out in the foyer on the little wooden bookshelf under the chalkboard. Take one of those after the service. Use that as a tool to help you pray, to direct what you're praying for over this month. Use it to disciple your kids for your own growth as well. That's a resource for you to help our body grow and being people of prayer. And then the other one that I mentioned was part of our plan this year to grow is to take steps to own up to each of the six pillars that each one of us would say, yes, I want to grow in each of these areas. And so the way we're encouraging you to start with that is just memorizing the scripture that's associated with each of those pillars. They come from the word of God. So for January, we said we want to be a people of bold preaching. And so the call, the challenge was to memorize 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and recite it. I'm, I'm going to go easy on you, but here's what that verse says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Was your life characterized by bold preaching in January? Were you unashamed of the gospel as you interacted with your family and your friends and your workplace? That's the idea that as we memorize this, we'd store it up in our heart so that it would change us and that we would live it out. Well, for February, we're working on passionate worship, which is John 4.24, which says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so my challenge is that you would write that down and begin working on memorizing it this month. And to, you probably have to read some of the context of that verse too to understand it to say, what does God want me to do with this? How do I worship him in spirit and truth? So if you're here and you're a Christian, use those tools. Those are just two ways that you could grow in pursuing Christ this month and preparing yourself for the coming kingdom of the Lord. Let's go back now to the, to the text, back to Matthew 3. Matthew, uh, as he records John's preaching, makes it clear, right? There's only two responses to the coming kingdom. It's either repent or be judged. That's our second reality that we have to address today. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. Verses 10 through 12 show us, you know, John's clearly saying there is a judgment coming. Time is of the essence. It's an urgent matter because none of us know the last day of our life. None of us know when Jesus is returning. So we've got to be ready. And John even says, there's one coming who will, who will shift and separate, uh, sift between the wheat and the chaff. These are serious things that we must respond to. And so as you think about this, as you read this, you have to choose whom you will serve. Right? That's the choice you have to, to make. Will you be the wheat who serves God and who are brought into the barn or will you be the chaff, those who serve self, those who worship false gods, idols, things of this life, and who we read about are burnt up with unquenchable fire? Every single one of us has to think about this and do something with it. See, John's concerned with the eternal salvation of the people he's preaching to. Jesus was also 
concerned with those people and their salvation. And so they both came and they preached a message of repentance and of faith in God. They, they preached to turn away from sin and to pursue Christ. Because that is the way that glorifies God and that's the best possible way to live. It's the way that we were designed to live. And in our day and age, we often are told that, you know, calling people to repent, that's so unloving. How can you do that? That's not the way we should go. And actually, that's a lie from the enemy. Because repentance is turning from death to life. It's turning from a, a, a way of living that will never satisfy to a way that is truly satisfying. It's the way that God designed you to live. And there's great joy when you live that way. When you know that you're bearing fruit that pleases your creator. So if you're here, and whether you're a Christian or not, if you hear the call to repent and you're like, oh, I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of Christians talking about this. It's so tedious to hear that I need to change or that I need to do something differently. What I would encourage you to think about is this. You're saying, I want death. Right? You are saying, I know better than you, God. I'm going to go my way and it's going to be fine. Meanwhile, God is saying, no. No, no, no. Don't pursue that path. That, that leads to death. Come and follow me. I will give you life. That's what you're saying when you say, I don't want to hear about repentance. So don't believe the lie. Listen to John the Baptist. Listen to Jesus Christ. Choose to repent of your sin and follow him. And for those who are in Christ, I hope that we would just be reminded this morning of how sweet it is to walk with Jesus how great it is that he has made a way for us. And let's not paint any false realities here. I'm under no impression that you and I don't struggle with the temptation to sin on a daily basis. At least that's my reality, right? Every day there are things that are, are tempting and we have to, to go to war with those, to fight for holiness, to say no to those things. But God has made a way for us. And I hope that as we study this passage, as we think about these realities that it will remind us, oh yeah, the kingdom is coming. And that gives me strength, that gives me encouragement to say no to whatever that temptation is today or tomorrow or the next day. Instead of choosing that path, I'm going to walk in the way of life, the way that God calls me to. And I would encourage you to just meditate on what he talks about with the wheat being brought into God's barn. Now, that may be an analogy that doesn't resonate with you a whole lot, but consider what it's teaching the Messiah is coming, and he's going to separate the grain from the chaff. A winnowing fork is like this big shovel, and it's tossing both of them into the air. And so what would happen is the wind would sweep away all of the lightweight chaff, and then all of the heavier wheat would fall to the ground, which then gathered and put in the barn. Here's what that means. Believers are the wheat. You are the ones who are gathered into God's barn. You're brought into heaven with him. You have the hope of eternal life. You have been saved. You're brought into his home and into his family. What's our response to that? As we think about that, right? It should be, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I've been set free from sin and death. And it's not based on anything I've done, but on his extravagant grace alone. Now, what's interesting is you look at this passage, you know, Matthew's in the middle of sharing what John's preaching, and then he does it again. He just has this abrupt stop and transition. This time he's wanting us to focus on Jesus. So let's go back to Matthew 3 now, 
and look at verses 13 through 17. Here's what John uh, says, or what Matthew records next, rather. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John is still part of this scene, but he's definitely not the main focus anymore. Right? Matthew's trying to set up, remember, who is Jesus? He's trying to draw the attention to Jesus. And we clearly see from John's behavior that Jesus is his superior. Now, we don't think that John knew that Jesus was the Messiah at this point because of some things that happened later in his ministry. He sends his disciples to Jesus to say, wait a minute, who are you exactly? But he would have known because he was Jesus' cousin of what happened when Mary and Elizabeth met and when they were both babies in the womb, how John in the womb leaped for joy when Mary shared with Elizabeth that she was pregnant with the Savior of the world. John would have known that Jesus was an incredibly righteous man. And so when Jesus comes to him to be baptized, John's like, whoa, 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 let's reverse the roles here. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus' response is, let it be so now. He's saying, John, this is what needs to happen at this time. Well, why is it what needs to happen? He goes on to say, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John, this is what God wants. This is what the Father wants. And we must obey him. That's what righteousness in, in the gospel of Matthew is, it means. It's obedience to God's will. And that's going to be a consistent theme that we trace throughout the gospel. And so when John hears that from Jesus, he consents and he says, okay. And he baptizes him. And then at that point, right, there's some pretty miraculous stuff that happens. Jesus comes out of the water. He sees the heavens open, the spirit coming on him like a dove. And then the voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Whoa, <laughs> there's a lot happening there. And I'm just going to mention this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but Matthew is showing that all three persons of the Godhead are there. You've got God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son all at Jesus' baptism. Pretty awesome. And what we're seeing in this last part of chapter 3 is Matthew's giving us this final reality that we have to respond to. Jesus' identity matters. Jesus' identity matters. There's a lot of truth about who Jesus is cranked into these last few verses. And again, as you think about our response, you got to do something with it. You have to respond to what's being claimed here. Look again at verse 17. What does the Father say? God the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What does that tell us about Jesus' identity? He's God's Son. He is God with us. <laughs> That's a big deal. And in fact, by God the Father saying this, he's actually fulfilling two Old Testament scriptures. Let me show them to you. The first is Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Do you hear that in, in what God the Father says? There's some overlap there. Listen to one more Old Testament passage. This is Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Those two passages are combined together in what God the Father is declaring about his son at his baptism. And there's some significant stuff being declared there. Jesus is being identified with the suffering servant from Isaiah, that he is the one who would come to rescue and redeem the people. He is the one who is the perfect Israel. He's the obedient son of God who always does what's pleasing to God. These are some tremendous truths about his identity. And as we've seen here, you know, through the first three chapters, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. They are pointing ahead to him. Those are some powerful themes that Matthew will continue to unpack. We're also shown that Jesus is the promised servant who came to confront Satan. He's the son of God who would not only confront Satan, but he would bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on earth in exciting new ways. This is a lot to take in, and we've got a lot more to continue to learn in the weeks ahead. And if you're wondering, how does all of this play out? What does this mean for me today? I would encourage you, please keep coming back so you can keep studying this with us. But here's what I want you to consider for today. How do you respond to these realities? What do you do with the things we're, we're studying this morning? They can't be ignored. You got to do something with them. And so if you're here and you're someone who, you know, is wrestling with what you believe, maybe you would say, you know, I don't believe in Christ. I just wonder how you might respond to the her, historical veracity of, of what's happening here. Like we can go back and prove that these things happened, that Jesus walked the earth, that he is who he claimed to be. He did these miracles. So how do you explain that away? Or how do you explain away his warnings about eternity that come up time and again? And if you're someone who believes in Jesus Christ, my hope is that you would be incredibly encouraged by both John the Baptist's testimony and the testimony of Jesus. Because by God's grace, you have been saved. You have heard that call to repent and you responded to it. Praise God for that. His grace is effective in your life. And what I would encourage you to do is to take time to just remember back to the day when you first believed and the joy that you had when you chose to turn away from sin and to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. And then to think through, how has God been at work in your life in the years since then or the days even or the months since then to reflect on all that he's done to help you produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And as you think about those things and as you celebrate those things, then I want to challenge you to not stop growing, right? to keep pursuing Christ, to keep making it your goal to be holy as he is holy, which we know means we have to take up our cross daily and follow him, to say no to self and yes to Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about identifying the top three ways that our walk with Christ is being hindered the things that are keeping you from growing in the ways that you know God wants you to grow. I hope we've been spending some time thinking through that, praying over that, wrestling through it. That's what we're talking about today, to, to say no to those things, to repent of those things, and to turn and pursue Christ in holiness. Maybe that means for you you're putting off a particular temptation, a particular sin struggle in your life. You know that that's a battle that doesn't please Christ, and you're wanting to grow in that. I pray that you would take this truth seriously, that you would invite brothers and sisters in, that you would allow them to walk with you, to wage war with you. 
Maybe for you, you'd say, well, I don't really see a lot of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. If we're told to bear that, I don't know if I am. And so it would be a time for you to go back maybe to Galatians 5 and study what are the fruit of the Spirit and, and then to pray, Lord, help me to display this. Help me to grow in this. Maybe there are certain situations in your life where you lack that, and so you'd ask God to help you. Maybe you're here and you're in the midst of pain and suffering. You know, my prayer is whatever it is that you're going through, that you would learn to trust God, that you would learn to see how God wants to produce goodness and holiness and righteousness in you. Allow Him to work in you for His glory. And may we be the type of people who, when we stand before the Lord one day, hear, this is my beloved son or this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Let's bow our heads and, and pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this, this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it confronts us where we're at, that it, that it challenges us to do something in response to who you are and what you've claimed and what you've done. And we just want to come before you right now and we want to ask for your help to respond to it, to take it seriously, to not brush it off, to not ignore it. And Lord, there are probably many different people here with many different stories. There are some who have professed faith in Christ and who are walking fruitfully with you, and I praise you for that. Thank you for your grace in their life. We pray that they would continue to pursue you. We pray that they would continue to identify what is the next step of repentance, the next thing that they need to put off so that they can pursue you. And then there might be others here today, Lord, who have professed something with their mouth at one point in their life, but frankly, there's no evidence of fruit in their life. They're not changed or changing, and so we pray for that individual that they would be convicted today and truly repent and truly believe and truly follow you and and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance going forward that they wouldn't feel condemned by what we've studied today, but rather liberated and choosing to walk with you. And then, Lord, for those who might be here who don't believe, I ask, Lord, that you would help them to to see and hear for the first time, to understand the hope that you provide, the, the way of life that is the way that we are called to live. And may they walk with you for the very first time today. Thank you, Jesus. You are worthy of our worship. We pray this in your name. Amen.